Welcome into the Big City Sports Podcast. We have another episode coming up, and it's going to be a lot of fun today. But before we get into today, I want to preview what we're going to be doing. So next week is going to be an NHL and NBA playoff preview. So we're going to break down the teams, our teams that are in the playoffs, which will be the uh, the Brooklyn Nets. And then we're also going to get into the hockey side of things where the Islanders, a big preview there. Potentially, we might be seeing the Knicks there. But uh, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about the Knicks. We're going to get in and wrap up the seasons for the Rangers, Bulls, and Blackhawks. But Swig, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, man. I'm excited to get into it a little bit. The um, the Knicks have been surprisingly good lately for the most part. And uh, yeah, um, I, I've been enjoying them for once, at least most of the time. It's It's been a lot different of a season than I expected. Yeah, let's uh, let's just get right into the Knicks. You talk about how it's it's a lot different than you expected. Obviously, going in, we thought new coach could potentially change things, but the play of Julius Randle this year has really elevated this team. He took that next step, and it seems like everyone else is buying into whatever Tom Thibodeau was uh, preaching to this team. Well, he's preaching defense and attention to detail, and and those are two things that have been hallmarks of the Knicks all season. But was since their uh, kind of later season surge here, they had a, what ended up being a nine-game winning streak. They won 12 out of 13. And as of the time of recording, they have one game left on this West Coast gauntlet against the Lakers tomorrow night. And in the first five games of the trip, they're three and two, kind of stole a win from the Clippers yesterday. So, yep, far from damaging by any means. It, it, it's been a pleasant surprise for sure. Um, they are close to clinching a playoff spot outside of the play in tournament. I'm hoping that that happens before this episode drops. That would be, that's my goal. Um, but right now the Knicks are in fourth place. Uh, I think half a game in front of Atlanta and uh, one game in front of Miami, but the one that matters is three games in front of the seventh place Celtics with four games to play. So hopefully they, uh, for the Knicks sake, they're able to stay in front of Boston and that would guarantee them a full series in the first round. Yeah, that, that would be nice. You, I mean, yeah, they just got it. They just need to root against Boston and just try to find a way to win some basketball games because that, that would put you in the best potential spot. Obviously, the play in tournament is not ideal, but if you do see the Knicks potentially making it to the play in tournament, do you think there's a chance they can win it? Oh, God, dude, I, I don't want to even get that far. We could. The Knicks have you know, proven that they're on, on any given night able to beat just about anyone. If beating the Clippers on the road when they were fully healthy isn't a, a testament to that, I don't know what is. But I, I, the more I look into the play in tournament in general, the more I don't like it. I know we've talked about that. I think it's stupid. Um, yeah, and, uh, we'll, and the Knicks-Lakers game I'm, tomorrow night, going into that, both teams have the same record. And the Lakers are actually in a play in tournament spot in the West at the time of recording. It's just, it's just crazy. Like I'm not trying to compare the teams or anything and they've had very different circumstances, but there's the fact that they're going into a game, the 69th game of the season for both teams. Nice. Yeah. You know, really nice. Yeah. Um, with the exact same record, it's just uh, unfathomable at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. I mean, who would have thought this year, the Knicks obviously taking that step. We went through, we talked about playoffs, and I might have gotten greedy and said the Bulls would get an eight seed. I can't remember. I'm going to have to go back to that. But we all expected the Nets to be great, and that brings me to the Nets. I mean, we're going to talk about them more next week, but, I mean, they're in a prime position right now to that they could potentially be winning this darn thing and at least coming out of the East. Right. They absolutely could. And, and, and just to follow up, we're going to get into the Knicks a little bit more in next week's episode as well. Hopefully they have clinched a playoff spot by then, but for my sake, but um, yeah, just to recap, they've been playing pretty well for the most part. They're close. The Nets, there's no doubt they will be a playoff team right now. They are battling for the second seed in the East. Uh, they have kind of, they had a four game losing streak recently. So the first seed is essentially out of reach. They're three games behind the 76ers at the time of recording with three to play. So that, that one seems unlikely if actually I think Philadelphia has the tiebreaker, so that would make it impossible, but um, the Nets are only one game in front of Milwaukee right now for that second seed. So James Harden has been out for a long time. His return is imminent. That should definitely help. We're kind of at the same point with the Nets where they have no problem scoring, but their defense is um, inconsistent. It's sort of like the opposite of the Knicks, the Knicks. I mean, they play a great defensive uh, structured sort of play and then they get they get timely shooting and that, that that's a that's a schedule for success when it comes to uh, the New York Knicks but the Nets are just the complete opposite they tried bringing in some pieces to help them defensively but uh, we will only have to see on how far that brings them 
Absolutely. And they've just been inconsistent on that end of the court. Now, during that four game losing streak, they couldn't get late stops against the Mavericks or the Bucks. They ended up losing to Milwaukee twice, which is part of the reason that uh, race for the two seed has tightened up so much. And it is something to look out for in terms of how long in the playoffs can they have that home court advantage. And I don't, uh, you know, one thing I've noticed when I've been watching is Steve Nash has kind of shortened the rotation a little bit. DeAndre Jordan's had a couple of uh, did not plays in, in there. I mean, he's a, he's a wild card, he kind of a throwback who won't be able to guard a guy like Embiid or Bam Adebayo by himself anymore. It's just, it, it is really interesting, but the Nets offensively, I, I don't have any concerns and really quick. I just want to say that, Joe Harris is shooting 48% from three this season. He has been absurd. That's that's pretty good. That is very good. And to your point on DeAndre Jordan, a stretch five is in his nightmares. I'd like to see which one he fears more, shooting a free throw regarding a stretch five. But uh, it's definitely something that Jordan is going to have to work on when it comes postseason time there. It is. And if the Nets decide not to play too much small ball, he'll still get some minutes. But I just don't see him being a 30, 35 minute a guy now, especially with Blake Griffin on board, him starting games, even with the LaMarcus Aldridge retirement. Yeah, after the brief time he was with Brooklyn, Jordan still isn't playing a ton of minutes at this point. So I, I don't see him having a huge role, but you never know. An injury comes in and, and he could be thrust. I mean, we know what kind of player and career he's had and the 29 games or so I remember him playing with the Knicks. He, his free throw shooting has improved a little bit. He's in the 65% range now, last I heard. So, you know, not quite the liability he was uh, during his Clippers days, but it, it is just interesting because the uh, when the Nets ended up with Durant and Irving originally, they both took a little bit less money to help the Nets sign DeAndre Jordan and he hasn't had quite the uh, the role expected is since the Jared Allen trade because of Griffin coming in and his frankly lack of effectiveness guarding stretch fives. Yeah. I mean, it, it was, it, it's crazy the way that Deandre Jordan has going to have to sort of tweak things a little bit to try to at least stay on the floor and try to help his team. But that's going to do it real quick for this top segment with the basketball things. And we're going to bring up more basketball with the Bulls later. But right now, we're going to keep it New York and switch to the New York Rangers. And, man, is there a lot to talk about this hockey team. We potentially teased a, a possible playoff scenario. Obviously, that was far-fetched with the way the Bruins have been playing and obviously the way the standings aligned. But, I mean, they, they've lost – they were 1-5 and five in their last six hockey games and – it just seems like Big Brother, the Islanders, just have been able to take care of them time and time again down the stretch. Yeah, and that's fine. For this season, at least, that's fine. It's disappointing, but I'm, I'm honestly fine with that. It's just, holy shit, has it been an exhausting week to be a Rangers fan. I, I know not everyone who listens to this follows hockey, but it's just been a circus. A circus both on and off the ice, um, I, I'll start really quick with the on ice part of it. The Rangers season officially ended on Saturday. They are out of games. They were eliminated from the playoffs. I want to say last Monday and um, ended up finishing fifth in the NHL's best division. That's far from embarrassing. I, I think at the beginning of the season, I predicted they would finish sixth behind Philadelphia as well. And the Flyers kind of imploded under Vino, which makes me smile a little. So the Rangers ended up finishing fifth instead. And, and they, they competed for a long time. They won a decent amount of games to keep the race interesting, but uh, we really, we, we all knew we didn't really have a chance at catching Boston or the Islanders or anyone else to sneak into the playoffs. And that's fine. But it's been everything else that's made it so exhausting. There's been fights, suspension debates, strong team statements, a firing of the entire front office. It has just been an absolute upheaval. And just so I don't ramble for too long, I'm going to let you ask me these questions one at a time about what I think of everything that the Rangers have done here. So what do you want me to start with? All right, let's get right into this. I like this. This is going to be a lot of fun. So I'm going to start with the most recent news, which is Chris Jury hopping up into the front office. How do you feel about that? And do you think it could be something that could potentially be a long-term issue? I have a few thoughts on it. So Chris Drury by himself, I like him. I, I, I have no doubt that you know, the guy's in his early 40s. 
and um, you know, so younger for the executive side. And he had a great career. He's been involved in the Rangers organization the last few years with the Rangers AHL team in Hartford. He's been the Hartford GM. And he has been a coveted executive around the league the last couple of seasons who's turned down other offers. And uh, I, I have no doubt that he would have taken another GM or president's job with another team if the Rangers didn't open a spot for him. And we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I, I, for now at least, have faith in Drury as an executive. He, he made his first move today, signing Ryan Lindgren to a three-year contract extension, $3 million a year. No problem with that at all. He's a very solid player. You got that done early. No drama. That's great. I, it's just it's more the behind-the-scenes stuff that I worry about. So if, for anyone who doesn't know, I've talked about the Knicks having a problematic owner for years. Unfortunately, he also owns the Rangers. And I you know, don't generally talk about that as much because he's known for not meddling with them. But he meddled big time last week uh, in elevating Drury to that role. And I just worry that if Dolan really is influencing everything behind the scenes and trying to rush everything, then it's going to end up leading to some very short-sighted decisions. We have seen that before. There is a precedent with the Knicks and the Rangers and the Rangers have been preaching patience for this rebuild. And uh, he very clearly ran out of patience. And I'm hoping that does not come back to backfire, but I can promise you as a Knicks and Rangers fan my entire life that if he thinks something, it's probably wrong. So I'm scared. That's not a good situation for anybody to step their toes into. But you you, you briefly noted about Chris Jury potentially being a number one candidate for some people to fill a executive fill an executive role uh, for a hockey team. Do you think that that is something when you when you jump the trigger on someone like him? and try to keep him in the organization that way. Do you think that sort of gives you a, a ledge up in the competition and making sure that he's the right guy for the job? It, it, I think there's definitely an influence there, but the Rangers actually did the same thing with Jeff Gordon a few years ago. He was, uh, he's the former Rangers GM now. And when he was an assistant Rangers GM back in the 2014, 15 range, uh, he was uh, essentially given that GM job. So he wouldn't take another job with another team. So there is a recent precedent for this. Um, you know, Drury from everything I've read, it, it seems that he's not going to be a puppet and that he's going to have full autonomy to make his own choices. And that would be great. I, I do think that I at least have faith in him for now. We'll see how he does. I mean, this is a guy who was in his first executive role with the NHL part of the team here, but it, but I do have faith in him for now. And the Lindgren move is a solid first step, but it's just, I, I do think him being in the organization already gave him a leg up, but he had a, a, a yeah, a, a burgeoning reputation around the NHL where he was going to get another job. And I think part of the reason the Rangers did all of these moves is to make sure he stayed with the organization because if they kept him with the Hartford side of the team. He would have left. Yeah, I agree there. I mean, the you, you want to get an NHL job and obviously there at the AHL level, it's nice that he had some success, but I mean, he's a top candidate. He's a He's a former player that used to play, and he's someone that's a smart hockey mind. So uh, just, just a lot of good things there for Chris Drury. But looking forward to this Rangers team, and this is going to backtrack a little bit. I know that I said I start with the most recent news, but then you also have the situation that happened with Tom Wilson. We didn't really dive into it on this show. Obviously, you're very heated about that topic, but what do you feel about the situation surrounding the Tom Wilson incident? The whole situation was fucking ridiculous. I'm not going to mince words here. There's no point. First of all, I want to make sure I say this up front. It seems that Artemi Panarin will be okay. He ended up missing the last couple games of the season, but I, I'm guessing it was a lower body injury, so that would tell me that nothing with his head or neck is, is an issue, which is great news. And there, those games were meaningless for the Rangers anyway, so there was, there was no point in risking his health for that, right? But I mean, I, I trust me, I was watching. And um, Tom Wilson, for anyone who doesn't know, is a notorious repeat offender with dirty and violent hits that have gotten him multiple suspensions, including one for seven games earlier this season, just two months ago. 
the what happened in this game is uh the rangers had a power play against the capitals um there was a stoppage in play pavel buchnevich was crashing the net um he well you know crashing the net isn't really that he was just standing in the general direction of the net and ended up falling yeah falling down or on the ground and tom wilson gave him a cheap shot to the back of his neck which the rangers didn't like and ryan strom and artemi panarin skated over panarin jumped on him i get that and uh, panarin throwing uh, or uh, wilson throwing panarin down wouldn't necessarily be a problem in itself. Panarin, uh, Panarin's not a very big guy, and Tom Wilson is more than capable of manhandling him or just about anyone else. I'm not here to question his toughness. What I am here to say is that he made a very, very dangerous play that could have ended Panarin's hockey career. So, you know, just taking him back of his hair, pulling him down to the ice. Thankfully, Panarin's shoulder hit his ice before his head did. But it, I mean, you, you've seen the slow motion video of that where his head got snapped back pretty good. And if anyone who's listening to this has ever had a ponytail, imagine being yanked down by your ponytail you know, hard enough that you're taken to the ground. It doesn't feel very good and it's very dangerous. So I, I'm not you know, trying to complain because it was the Rangers that were affected or because it was Panarin, the team's best player who was injured in the play. It's just clear to me that Wilson is a dangerous player. He is a very good, very physical player who uh, I'm not trying to deny any of what he can bring to the table for any Capitals fans who are going to say he lives rent free in our heads. I don't care about that. He is all, he is just a guy who has you know, become very close to causing severe or permanent injury to multiple players, Oscar Sundquist, Brandon Carlo, Panarin. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple. And somehow he was not suspended for this, despite the repeat offender tag uh, and the most recent incident two months ago. It's just the NHL player safety department is known for being inconsistent. This sure as hell lined up with that. And then the Rangers and Capitals had a rematch, which led to 100 penalty minutes in the first period and six fights in the first four minutes. It, I, I, I have a lot of thoughts on it, but the short version is he's a dirty player and he should have been suspended. And he does not have the benefit of the doubt because he's a repeat offender. We'll get into the on ice stuff here in a little bit, but I want to ask one more question. And obviously the front office was fired. A lot of changes taking place there. But if you look back throughout these last four months, there have been so much drama with this hockey team with incidents, the Panarin leave, the D Tony D'Angelo situation, uh, the Keandre Miller situation. I mean, there was something that happened almost every single time. And most of it was off the ice. So do you think that that played a role in the firing? And also, do you think that that is something that could be problematic, not only this year, but going forward? Yeah, that's it's that's something I've given a lot of thought to. I mean, I, I'm just uh, one more time. I just want to say how fucking exhausting this season has been as a whole. It's it's been very eventful. Uh, yeah, the Rangers are never really a boring team or organization, but they cranked that up to 11 this year. You mentioned D'Angelo, the Panarin leave of absence, the Keandre Miller, very unfortunate situation on a Zoom call. The uh, Rangers' entire coaching staff had COVID and missed 10, uh, 10 days behind the bench, and Drury and the Rangers' AHL coaches were there instead. It, it's just been chaotic from start to finish. And then the Rangers fire their president and GM right before the second Rangers Capitals game with three games left in the season. So uh, just you mentioned most of it being off the ice. There's one other thing that I think we need to mention off the ice that led to the firings and was part of the Rangers Capitals situation. After Tom Wilson was not suspended, he was given a $5,000 fine, which for him is pocket change. So who cares? The Rangers released a very strong statement, a surprisingly strong and direct statement, openly criticizing the NHL for not suspending him due to his dangerous nature, and then calling out the NHL's uh, head of the player safety department, George Peros, a former NHL player, who is uh, able to give those rulings for fines and suspensions, saying he is unfit to continue in his role. Um, frankly, that's all true. I, I, I don't think anyone who's not a Capitals fan would disagree. Um, but the NHL, I mean, that was part of part of all of this is that supposedly James uh, Jim Dolan issued that statement. And then John Davidson and Jeff Gordon weren't aware of it and didn't necessarily agree with it or refused to say they agreed with it in order to keep themselves able to get a job with another team. Maybe the Kraken will call them. So if that's the case, I think part of it might have happened because if you're Artemi Panarin, wouldn't you want the GM and president to have your back after you are nearly severely injured in a very dangerous situation? Absolutely. I, I think 100% for 
Artemi Panarin there. I mean, it's just a tricky situation and a lot of off the off the ice issues for this Rangers team. But going back to the on ice as we wrap up the season for the New York Rangers, I want to talk a little bit about the goaltenders this year. We talked, we had Vinny on, uh, Vinny Milani for the season preview for the Rangers. He said that Igor Shesterkin would be a Vesna candidate this year and someone to watch out for. No, it was a Calder. He was a Calder mm-hmm. because uh, being a mm-hmm. rookie there. But I mean, I mean, he had a pretty solid season, 262 goals against, 916 save percentage. Then you had Georgiev with a 905 save percentage and a goals against about 270-ish. So how do you feel the goaltenders performed this year as a as a young tandem? I like Shesterkin. I mean, he he got off to a bit of a rough start. He wasn't great at the beginning of the season, but uh, was very good from there on out and he established himself as the Rangers' clear number one goalie, which didn't surprise me at all. Georgiev was very strong last season as well, but he was a little bit more inconsistent and uh, at one point was losing starting games to Keith Kincaid, who played pretty well in his appearances. I'm not trying to say this is an insult to Kincaid. It's just that because uh, Georgiev was so highly regarded with the last couple of seasons he had a couple of very discouraging performances in the middle of the season uh, there was a game against the penguins where he gave up three goals in 59 seconds i believe and um, kincaid came in after that and then got a couple of starts um overall no doubt that shesterkin is going to be the number one goalie for the rangers going forward i never doubted it and he only cemented that by finishing the season very strong georgiev i'm a little bit more curious i i he's still going to be with the organization uh, and I, I think because the rangers if they were going to trade him if they were going to sell high on him i think it should have been before this season he, he was coming off of a very strong year last year and um and this year he wasn't quite as good. So, and, and goalies are really difficult to gauge on the trade market anyway. But if you're going to trade a 24, 25 year old, you, you're going to get more back for him if he's coming off a strong season than a disappointing one. So I think they're going to continue to be the tandem for at least one more season. You look at a team like the Chicago Blackhawks who traded anti Ranta when he, he, he peaked in one season. And that was like a backup role where, uh, he was he was in a tandem with Crawford. Obviously, it's sort of Crawford's net, so you're not going to give Ronta any time there. So they ended up pulling the trigger in a move that I think the Rangers should have made as well, getting rid of Georgiev. But let's look real quick on the young talent perspective with the with, at the forward position. Mm-hmm. And we saw two players with the Rangers be picked pretty high in the lottery, but Capo Caco and Alexi Lafreniere. And I'm not the biggest Capo Caco fan, I'll be honest with you. But um, Lafreniere, I think his rookie season was pretty solid. I mean, 21 points in his games. He got better as the season went on. He had some streaky play there. So as a young kid, I think that was a great season for Lafreniere. But the real talking point here is Capo Caco. How do you feel he has been the last two years? I think he took a big step forward this season. He's not perfect, but he was significantly better in year two than year one. And that's what you want to see for a 20 year old guy. I mean, I'm just, I'm not ready to throw on the towel here. Like I'm I'm saying not big on the Rangers who were preaching patience and then Dolan after three seasons where the Rangers are already ahead of schedule saying, fuck it, let's speed this up and not showing the patience. Right. So I'm going to, you know, back up my own words here and say, I'm not giving up on Kako yet. Not even close. He was, he took especially big strides in the, uh, on the defensive end where he was a real liability his first year turned into a very solid defender in year two, which is great. And in the offensive zone, he was a lot more confident handling the puck. It was a noticeable improvement. There weren't a lot of points, but he also uh, wasn't necessarily put with the best line mates consistently, which was a problem for Lafreniere as well. And it, it did get better as the season went along. Uh, one thing that that whole Wilson Panarin incident forced me to do is uh, about 10 minutes before that, there, Lafreniere and Kako connected on a really, really nice two-on-one goal that I loved and unfortunately didn't get to enjoy it very long because of what happened right afterwards. But um Kako is a guy that I expect to be a little bit more decisive in the offensive zone next year, but he's one of the few Ranger forwards who is a little bit bigger, who uh, can kind of keep that puck on a stick and drive north south to the net. The Rangers as a team have a problem not shooting the damn puck and overpassing it, and he is definitely part of that. But I definitely saw improvement. I expect to see more improvement in year three. He does not have the same ceiling that Lafreniere does, I, I, I don't think, but he could still be a very, very good NHL player. And I'd like to see him get consistent, uh, you know, top six minutes and power play time next season. That would be putting him in a better position to succeed. 
You brought up the point about defense and how he got better. You look at the plus-minus department. Granted, the team was better, so you got a little bit better in that front. He had a minus-26 rating in 2020. This year, he has a plus-three. So that's a massive turnover. So you talk about the defensive end. He definitely improved in that department. But I feel like being that high and that touted, you look at the players in that draft class, and it was one-two. I can't remember the first one. Jack Hughes, Capo Caco. Those two were right back to each other. There was no chance that number three was going to get Kako because of how good the guy was and how touted he was as a prospect. And you see these draft classes and young players just put up 40-point seasons right out of the gate. And it, it seems like Kako is just taking a little bit of a slow step offensively. So, I mean, the offensive numbers might not always be there for a guy like him, but I think he could still end up being a pretty solid NHL player. Right. It's, it's like going forward here, we're going to want to see more points on the scoreboard, but he still took a big step forward in year two, which is great. The kid's only 20 years old. Everyone's got to relax a little bit. There's still some upside. There is still a lot of talent left to be hopefully harnessed here in the next couple of seasons where we see a little bit more of a definitive step forward, but we have absolutely seen improvement, which is great. Uh, now we'll see if, if he ends up having a year, like just like year two and year three, then maybe it's, a little bit more of a cause for concern there's this is a guy who's also had you know two shortened seasons in the nhl with a lack of practice time in this season lack of preseason lack of a lot of things that could help him develop naturally so just hopefully next season for all teams and all players is a little bit closer to normal where you have a full off season to recover and you, you get those uh, workouts with your teammates and you get a full preseason training camp etc just to kind of gradually build up and yeah, be able to start the season on a more normal note rather than starting it in the middle of a pandemic you know it, it's difficult for all players I'm not making excuses for him uh, Lafreniere I did think uh, showed he got a lot better as the season went along finished the season on a really strong note I'm encouraged with him for sure you know they both uh, generated a decent amount of scoring chances in the offensive zone which is great Lafreniere in particular he was not put on the power play pretty much the entire season. I like Colin Blackwell. He exceeded all possible expectations as a fourth line player, but he should not be on the power play over Alexi Lafreniere. He just shouldn't. You're, Lafreniere was playing third line minutes a lot of the season, sometimes even on the fourth line without power play time. So you're limiting the opportunities for him to put points on the board. He eventually started to because at the end of the year, they switched him with Chris Kreider and put him on a line with Mika Zibanejad and Pavel Buchnevich who are better at generating offense than most Rangers players. So that that's one thing I'd like to see more of. But to me, I still think he is an absolute top six forward. He got better as this season went along, also had the weird off season, and I expect him to get better in year two. I could see that. I could see the I, – I see more upside long-term with Lafreniere than I do with Kako. And I, right. I – what do you see right here? Now, before we get into the Bulls, I want to say this. Do you think – what, what's the percentage that Capocaco is on the Rangers roster next year? I still think it's pretty high. Um, there are a lot of young players that I am worried about yeah, being traded in a short-sighted move to try to win the cup faster. I'm, I'm for now, I'm going to give Drury the benefit of the doubt. I don't think Panarin's going anywhere, obviously, and his contract would be difficult to move even if they wanted to, but I don't think that's in the cards. Ignoring Panarin. There are four players that I think should be off limits right now, no matter what. And that would be Shesterkin, Adam Fox, Kako, and Lafreniere. I don't want them being on the table for anyone. I want to make that perfectly clear here. If the Rangers are going to go for a guy like Jack Eichel, who might not be as expensive as you might think, he's coming off of a potentially serious neck injury and has six years left on a contract with 10 million a year. And the Sabres are a fucking dumpster fire. So I, he might not cost as much as you think, but Guys like Vitaly Kravtsov or Philip Hedl or Keandre Miller might be on the table. I, I would have said Lindgren, but he just signed the contract extension, so I'd be surprised. I, I, and the Rangers have other guys in the pipeline with uh, Niels Lundqvist and Braden Schneider and several other guys there. So not all of them are going to end up on the New York Rangers regardless. There's, so many, there's only so many spots on the roster. But Kako, for now, considering the high investment in him, um, I'd say 95% will be on the Rangers roster next season. Now, uh, it, hopefully Drury does not you know, trade him for, you know, for a guy 
who does not have that star power or is not a great player as part of a package. Cause if he's part of a package for an old school, tough guy, if they're going for a Luke Shen or something, I'm going to be pissed. Yeah. I'd be pissed too. If you get a Luke Shen for that, that'd be a horrible I, deal. Just the first name that came to Luke mind Shen. for a physically tough player. Who's not very good. I know that you could uh, say maybe a Nick Felino would be a better example. Go. You know yeah. that, but I, but Kako should not be included in a package for a guy like that. Now I think Felino's a free agent after this season, but just, so if you're going to sign someone like that, fine, I guess, but don't trade a 20 year old talented player for a, a good, but not great guy whose best attributes are leadership and toughness rather than skill. That's fair. That's definitely fair. I don't think there's a chance. Well, uh, I mean, you never know what Jerry's going to do because he's still freshly in the spot. So, I mean, it's going to be interesting for the Rangers going forward, but let's get into the bowls real quick. And the Chicago bowls, Man, this team was so up and down this year. I mean, there were stretches where they looked like they were a playoff team. We had an episode that we talked about, are they going to buy or sell? Are they going to go in? And they bought. They they got Nikola Vucevic, but it seems like just the injury to Zach Levine definitely paid a role, played a role down the stretch a little bit for this Bulls team. But, I mean, I think the Bulls right now, Vucevic was a long-term move. So you get him for multiple years, not just this year. And I think he could still sort of build that culture. And they're technically not out of the playoffs right now. Well, when we talked about the Bulls, when they got Nikola Vucevic, I think we both also said something along the lines of that they should be in the play-in tournament, if nothing else. Yeah. That seems unlikely to happen right now. We might've jumped the gun a little bit there. <laughs> so for anyone at the time of recording, the Bulls are two and a half games out of that uh, play-in spot. The Wizards are in 10th place right now uh, with four games left to play. So their chances are low. Zach Levine missed several games. I believe he was in the uh, the COVID protocol list and missed a few games because of that. Vucevic, I know, missed some time with a hip injury. So missing their two best and most important players isn't going to help the situation. And the Bulls suffered as a result they have won three straight games since including a thrashing of the celtics in their most recent game i believe which is you know good news for the knicks as well thanks for that but um their offense while it usually is very very good and they finally had levine and vucevic and kobe white in the starting lineup for only the second time since vucevic was acquired their defense is still really inconsistent and obviously missing Levine for all that time made their uh, uh, de decrease their chances of getting into the play-in tournament significantly. And that to me, I think is going to be a really interesting question in this offseason as Karnasovas and company continue to shape this team. I mean, they clearly went all in to try to make the playoffs this season and it seems highly unlikely to work. And now I'm really curious to see how Levine responds to that. Yes, and he is a free agent after next season. So I'm, it, it's, I don't think it's a guarantee yet that he, he stays until he's locked up long-term. I, I agree with that. I agree with it. But I think going into the offseason, the number one priority has to be point guard because we learned this year that Kobe White is not a point guard. They gave him the opportunity. They wanted him to try to facilitate. He got a little bit better in that department but he still turns the ball over a ton. He's shooting 35% from three-point range. Now, that's technically not – I mean, it's 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 about eh, – it, it's it's bad. I mean, it's it's bad to, bad to average for someone that should be a shooting point guard. So if he's not shooting and he can't play the position, what the hell is he doing on the floor? So, I mean, it's going to be a position to upgrade. I think the point guard – for sure is definitely something they need to look at. And also you're getting rid of Lori Markin and thank goodness. I can't wait till that guy's out of town. That's a big swing and a miss. <laughs> yeah. Markin's not coming back. Uh, he's actually been uh, transitioning into a bench role where he has continued to struggle mightily. So that's not great for a guy who was once thought to be a franchise cornerstone. Kobe white is a very talented and very, at least at times productive, but he is a very inconsistent and streaky player as well. Now here's a question I want to ask you though. Levine being a free agent after next season, let's say the Bulls sell him on him and Vucevic you know, a full season, hopefully no more COVID protocol absences or hip injuries or any of that crap. And they get to play a full season yeah, and hope. And that would be something where the Bulls should be able to improve a, a decent amount at the very least. He's a free agent after next year. I don't think I, he considering the season he's had, he, I think he's going to end up with a max contract. Would you be comfortable giving him a max contract to keep him in Chicago? hundred percent. 
100%. Because, I mean, Zach Levine is someone that has definitely taken leaps and bounties over the – I mean, each year he's getting progressively better. Coming off that ACL injury that he had, he got traded, of course, from Minnesota, came over and really just started working and working and working. He's been through a bunch of bad head coaches. Now he has Billy Donovan. He's playing really well. And, I mean, he's only getting better, and he's still super young. I can't remember how old he is, but I think he's still – he's not older than 27, so he's still – fairly young and is someone that's a budding star in this league. I mean, I don't think his potential has been untapped yet. And if you can get someone that can facilitate behind him at the point guard position that gets him the ball that helps spread the offense around a little bit, I think it can absolutely, absolutely excel uh, Zach Levine's play even higher. So if you can get him on a max deal, I'd almost try locking him up this, this summer instead of next summer. But obviously he's going to have to buy into that before anything happens. Right. And uh, to me, it's clear that Zach Levine has at least earned that contract. Now, I'm not saying it would be a perfect move or anything, but considering how well he has played, the max contract is the going rate for somebody like him right now. And I don't blame him if he says, I'm not staying for anything less. You know, just individually, that's what he should do. That's what his market value, his agent should be doing that. We've seen worse players get max contracts. So, but you know, Levine has absolutely been a top 20, 25 player in the NBA this year at the very least. So it just, the bigger question is, are the Bulls going to be willing to give him that contract? Because if not, somebody else will after next season. And if the Bulls want to keep him around, they've got to try to get him locked up this summer. If they let him reach unrestricted free agency on July 1st, 2022, I think he's gone. Now, uh, I do think this year is closer to the ceiling of what Zach Levine can be, but I do agree there's still some upside there. But I think this season is a lot closer to the best we're going to see from him. I don't think he's going to be, become like significantly better than this. I, I think maybe marginally better. Uh, but And I don't mean that as an insult. You know, late 20s is usually when a guy starts to peak. That's fair. Uh, if you want to get Levine to stay in Chicago, here's what you got to do. Arturis Karnasovas, if you're watching this, God forbid, if you're watching this, and you want to know how to watch <laughs> and you want and you want to know how to keep Levine in Chicago, get rid of marketing, get rid of Thomas Sadaransky, get rid of Garrett Temple, get rid of Denzel Valentine. Oh Lord, get rid of Cristiano Felicio, get rid of D Devon Dotson, get rid of Makoka, get rid of Archie Diacono, and build a basketball team that doesn't have the same people from the Boylan era coming off the bench. Well, uh, what he does with all of those guys, and then there's the questions on Thaddeus Young and Daniel Tice as well. Um, just that's go out. Those are going to be the immediate questions to be answered besides Levine, because Vucevic is signed until the 2023 20, uh, season, I believe. So he has two more years after this year. So you can kind of put him on the back burner a little bit. Outside of Levine, yeah, I do think you obviously need to upgrade the supporting cast a little bit. I think, I mean, Thaddeus Young was probably proven to be Zach Levine's best co-star until Vucevic showed up and they haven't been able to play much together so far, which is why this season will probably end with them out of the play-in tournament. So that would also leave them with a lottery pick and a decent amount of cap space because the vast majority of those guys you mentioned will probably not be back. Might see a couple of guys get traded. A few just walk as free agents. Markkinen bet on himself on a one-year contract and failed miserably following the Nerlens Noel blueprint with Dallas. So um, it's just, it, it's going to be a huge foundational offseason. Karnasovas was not going to be able to turn everything on his head within his first week of you know, being on the job in this short and truncated cra crazy offseason. You know, this summer he'll be able to evaluate what he had. He already has made a lot of moves to shape the team and his image, and he's going to make some significant alterations this year as well. But I think what the, the team we see next season is going to be a more accurate representation of what he's trying to build than this year was, considering how compressed the offseason was and how unrealistic it is for him to turn every single thing on its head within a week. Yeah, it was definitely some uh, tempered expectations given everything there, but they did end up getting some fans back in the United Center, and that's where I'm going to transition to the Blackhawks real quick. And the Blackhawks, I mean, this season was so much fun. I'll say it. I had so much fun watching this hockey team for about three and a half months. It was it was the best because, I mean, you you were coming in with zero expectations. People were like, who the heck's your goaltender? You got the worst tandem in the NHL. Malcolm Subban and Colin Delia was to start the season. They're like, who are these idiots? I actually, in the first episode, 
not the first episode, the first hockey episode that we had previewing the season, I said Kevin Lankinen is going to emerge in that in that goaltender in, in the crease. He's going to end up taking that job, and he ended up taking it by the third week of the season and just ran away with it. So, I mean, it was a fun season for the Blackhawks, but after they traded Matthias Janmark, that's really when things were like, all right, it's going to start to fizzle out. The Nashville Predators caught some heat, and then they started to just take off. So the slim margin of the playoffs definitely didn't help them uh, try to get in this year, but I thought it was still a heck of a ride for that team. Yeah, there were definitely a lot of positive signs, I think. Uh, I, I it, It's about time they finally started to come back to earth a little bit. It's just as much talent as they have. They're just not – on paper, a team that should have been in the playoffs in their division yet. And it was just weird to see how, how good they were doing for 35 or 40 games. But um, the Predators, who it looked like might be firing John Hines at one point, and then all of a sudden they went, I think, 17-9-1 to finish the season or something like that. And actually, I think they still have a couple games left, but they've already clinched a playoff spot. Uh, Part of the reason the Blackhawks were in a position for so long is because Nashville and Dallas were struggling. And um, once they started to right the ship a little bit, I I know the Stars aren't going to be in the playoffs either, but in a division with a Carolina team that has been fantastic all year and then uh, a much improved Florida Panthers team and the defending cup champions in the lightning that really left a few teams battling for that fourth place job or fourth place spot in my mind. And it, it seemed, I thought Dallas was the best bet to end up with it. Uh, Columbus and Detroit were obviously not going to be threats and Chicago finally started to decline a little, but I'll ask you a couple of questions. I mean, Lincoln, in, I do think started to fizzle out a little bit at the end of the season after his torrid start. D- does that worry you at all going forward? I don't think it does, but I think you cannot keep putting Malcolm Subban behind him. I mean, Lincoln was just, he was a workhorse this year. I mean, he had, 37 games played and they just they basically ran him into the ground and so for him coming into the season was probably like all right I'll probably play about 25-ish games in Rockford and maybe I'll get maybe five or something like that games at the National Hockey League level but he got that job and they're like hey we're winning hockey games let's ride him out so I mean they they absolutely destroyed the guy and he did I think finishing the season uh two nights ago he had the he had the big game where he had the big win in the United Center with fans there. And he got a post-game interview with Eddie Olchek. And he was just, he was all smiles saying he was happy to be here, happy to finally have some fans watch him play in the United Center. And it was just, it was so cool to see someone like him. I think he's just, he's a great guy, a great person. And I think if they, if they want to get that goaltender position shirt up, they have to get rid of Delia. They have to get rid of Subban bring in a veteran backstop that has some sort of starting experience back there and maybe have him back up someone like a Kevin Lykanen who could end up still emerging a little bit more. I can see it. Uh, it, What you're describing though is more of a one, a one B situation, I think than him being a full starter. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. The second goalie on all NHL teams are playing a lot more now than ever. Even in the playoffs, we're seeing both goalies of a tandem getting starts in the middle of a series. So not that there's not precedent for that, but I, I do think there were a few cracks in the armor that showed up near the end of the season after the great start, still think he was a huge positive overall. Now yeah, there's the questions of, course where Jonathan Tays missed the entire season we'll see if he comes back next year Herbie Doc came back late this season wasn't great I don't think but he also missed most of the year and wasn't able to get that same rhythm so I'm not too worried about him yeah we'll see if he's closer to what he was in the bubble last year next season right uh, I think the other question I want to ask is just the development of some of these younger players. So yeah. Philip Kurashev, uh, Pia Suter, even guys like Brandon Hagel, you know, maybe a little bit of Debrinkin or Kubalik. What did you see from those guys? I, I was ecstatic when I saw Alex Debrinkin play to his level because, I mean, he was someone last year, and I, it might have been just last year. I cannot remember, but uh, it might have been last year and the year before. But he, he, he had a solid 40-goal season a few years back and then boom, he just fell off the face of the earth. And you see that sometimes with hockey players, it's like one season, they just disappear. You look at someone like a Patrick line, he had like a solid 90 points one season. And then all of a sudden just fell off the face of the earth, but to bring it this year in 52 games had 56 points. I mean, the guy was all over the ice, putting the puck in the back of the net. And then Dominic Kubelik, I'll be honest. I never said this on a podcast because I'm a big fan of Dominic Kubelik. 
but I thought he was going to, I thought he was going to take a step back this year because he's just a hard shooting one timer sort of blaster. And as someone that, I mean, players of his caliber tend to usually fall off after a breakout year like this. And plus, if you dove back into the stats of his rookie season, he really had games where he would just, he'd have like a hat trick and then he'd score two. And then it was sort of like up and down play. But this year he had 38 points in 56 games, uh, had 21 assists to go along with his 17 goals. And he was just all over the ice. And then talking about the development, this is what Stan Bowman does so well. And I give him a lot of crap for the trades that he gets short-sighted on about half the time, sometimes more than that. But he brought, he finds gems. He finds a Philip Kurashev. He finds a Pew Suter. Suter had 27 points in his rookie season. And even going back a few years ago, he found someone like a Dominic Cahoon. And he, he just finds these random gems out of nowhere and then just sticks them in the lineup and they just tend to produce. And then going to your point real quick on Hagel, I mean, he's someone that you just see that feisty mentality in sort of like a grinder but still can play I mean he, he back checks well he does a lot of great things well and if someone's I'm not going to say like a Daniel Carcillo but someone sort of in that role to where he can he could he could he could hit you a little bit he might drop the gloves but he could still put the puck in the back of the net yeah I hope he's a much better person than Carcillo has turned out to be um, but I do agree that he's a really solid energy guy to me he's in a lot of ways a smarter version of what Brendan Lemieux was for the Rangers uh, better hockey player overall but also significantly smarter has a bit of a physical edge I like him as a fourth line player now I don't want him doing anything else above that personally I don't see him having that same upside but I do think overall at least with the forwards there was a lot of upside with the Blackhawks and a lot to build off of going forward Patrick Kane had an amazing year, of course, especially at the beginning of the season. And if Taze is able to come back, that forward group might get even better. I expect Kirby Doc to bounce back if he gets a full season. But one, one area of concern I still have is defensively with the Blackhawks. And I told you I hated the Zadorov pickup. Do, do you see why I didn't like him yet? Yes, because he's a physical defenseman that doesn't know how to play defense. Right. And then you traded Brandon Saad for him and didn't get anything else and such as a prospect or young draft picks. And then you got the Bodans and Mitchells of the world who aren't playing enough, but I, I'm going to go even more in depth, in depth here. There are some people who are doubting the system that Jeremy Colleton is running defensively. Obviously the personnel is far from ideal. How much of a concern do you have regarding his system? And do you think it's any a system that can work defensively long-term or do you think they need to switch coaches? I don't like the system, but I don't like the hockey players he has on the defense either, if that makes sense. I mean, you look at the defensive players that the Blackhawks have, and everyone is raving about Adam Boquist. I'm going to go on the record right here and say Adam Boquist is going to finish his NHL career as a forward because that guy does not know how to play defense. He activates every single time. You have a right winger, left winger has to drop back and play, and then it becomes a two-on-one, and then bam, a goal happens, and he's sitting there like, what just happened? I'll tell you what happened. You activated. You went around the side of the net trying to make a spectacular play, and you look like an idiot half the time. So Adam Boquist, I'm not a big fan of him. I know he has great upside. I know that he ha he's an offensive defenseman, but you also have to know when to control the back end and when to get back defensively. And I, I just don't see that in his in what he can bring. I think he's a great forechecker. It's just you don't forecheck if you're a defenseman. So hopefully that's something he can work on a little bit. But going to your point on the defensive structure for Colleton, it's weird because he has players that he brings in. You look at an Eric Gustafson who sort of thrived in that. But then again, it goes back to can you play the defensive side? There for a while, they were playing some close hockey games, but then it just sort of collapsed. So I think he can make the system that he runs defensively is good. But he also has to start making adjustments to what teams are bringing in the second period, in the third period, because that's when you saw a lot of late game collapses this year. And some of it might be on Lankin and some of it might be on the defense, but they're just peppering shots, peppering shots. Mm -hmm. And those are adjustments that coaches need to make. And Colleton just did not make them. Right. So let, let me simplify the question a little bit. Let's say it is a good system. And even, do you, whatever personnel that the Blackhawks have defensively, do you trust Colin to be, to be the guy that maximizes the, the system and the players he has to run it? I don't think so. I mean, it's tough because Jeremy Colleton coming into this season, I'm like, all right, this is just a freaking dude that thinks he's 
thinks he's the smoke show of the world wearing his glasses, running his little thing that he has got my coffee. You know, I I'm, I'm this guy. I'm the, I'm the smoke show. You know, I show up to the rink. I do this. I I'm, I'm the coach, you know, my name's Jeremy Colleton. So, I mean, he, he does, he does the same thing to where I'm like, all right, this guy's just a, he's just there. He's a body. Like, I don't think of him as a hockey coach, but then when they started winning games, when they weren't supposed to, I'm like, Hey, you got to give credit where it's due. But then again, it comes back to blowing games late, go, blowing games late. So I don't potentially see that he is someone that can maximize the potential of this roster, although he is getting a lot from the younger players, which is what they wanted in the hire. Yeah, that's that's the big question. It's kind of uh, it, it, it's something you can apply to David Quinn with the Rangers as well. And uh, basically, you're seeing good development in some areas under both coaches and pretty big red flags in other areas. And considering they're both coaches of young teams that supposedly have bright futures, it's just really, really difficult where if you, you can't keep them too long if they basically are a liability in certain aspects of player development. If you are not able to develop a good defensive system in Chicago, it's going to limit the talented group of forwards. The Rangers were much better defensively this season than they were last year. A huge improvement with the special teams, especially the penalty kill, uh, their defensive zone structure. They weren't hemorrhaging shots as much as they were last year. But then, yeah, and guys like Adam Fox and Keandre Miller have thrived under Quinn and his developmental. But some of the forwards like Kako and Lafreniere weren't great immediately. And we've seen some red flags. So it's just, I, I see some comparisons there. I have some of the, yeah, I have questions about different aspects of their games, but I, I'm not sold on either one of them being the long-term coach. Yeah. Quinn definitely soured himself on me personally in year three. And I wouldn't be surprised if Drury brings in his own guy. And I'm curious to see how much of a leash Jeremy Colladin has next year, where I think the Blackhawks are going to want to reasonably take a step forward. Yeah, I think they will. And I'm going to tease one thing before we get out of here. You know that this Nick, I almost said his name. I think there's someone that the Hawks are going to bring back. I mean, Bowman always likes to bring someone back year after year. And this is on the defensive side. It's going to be Nicholas Jalmerson. Nicholas Jalmerson, the defenseman, obviously spent a lot of his Blackhawks career in a uniform with the Blackhawks. And I mean, spent a lot of his NHL career with the Blackhawks. And those were the good years. He's a great defenseman as someone that is familiar with the city, familiar with his teammates. And as someone that could step in, maybe you put him next to an aging Duncan Keith. I know Jalmerson's aging as well, but his contract's up in Arizona. And I think it might be one of those potential reunions that Stan Bowman is always so thrilled about. Well, it depends on the contract, but if he's a free agent, you don't have to give up any assets in the organization for him. It could be a good move. Could be a good move, but uh, that's going to wrap it up for today. So we ended up talking all of the teams that seasons are over. So we put a bow on that and tie it up for potential refrainment to where we bring it up next year, whatever that happens again. But going forward, like I said, we're going to talk playoffs next week, NHL playoffs, talk about the, New York Islanders potentially have a guest there. And then you also look at the basketball side of things. Knicks hopefully will be in. The Nets are definitely going to be in. It's just where they're going to be located in the seating. But that's going to do it for today. So make sure you check us out everywhere. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Leave a like, leave a review. Check us out on YouTube. See our pretty faces and all that good stuff. Maybe you'll see a prop from time to time. I know Swigs broke out a couple of those on here. So uh, head on over to YouTube as well. Check that out. But until next time, this is Dylan Kearns with Swig. It's the Big City Sports Podcast. We'll see you next time.